Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Tonight we're talking to Michelle S. Johnson. Michelle is a public scholar in the fields of African American history, literature, and cultural production, and has taught in liberal studies and African-American studies at Grand Valley State University, American Thought and Culture and History at Michigan State University, and English at Saginaw Valley State University and University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She holds a BA in Humanities from Michigan State and a PhD in American Culture from the University of Michigan. She was one of the co-founders and executive directors of FIRE Historical and Cultural Arts Collaborative. This Kalamazoo arts and cultural nonprofit came to serve as the go-to organization for emerging artists and cultural producers. As a professor, Michelle developed her identity as a public scholar in cultural studies and created programs and classroom environments that provided significant academic skills while retaining and encouraging students to think critically and creatively. During her work as the Freedom Trail Coordinator for the State of Michigan, Michelle solidified her public scholarship and leadership and expanded her contribution to assist professional and lay historians in the preservation, documentation, and promotion of underground railroad history. She researches, writes, and lectures for academic and public settings on aspects of African-American culture, including Paradise Valley, Idlewild, and Motown. Dr. Johnson's scholarship includes an oral history project on the lives of African-Americans and Latinos in Saginaw, Michigan, and a community project in Florida. She served as lead historian and co-author for the So This Is the Fire and performs in creative interpretations of historical material. Johnson researched and compiled a curriculum series on the Underground Railroad and resistance to slavery for the first congressional, congregational, I'm sorry, Church of Detroit. And when she has a moment free, she's also a popular DJ on Kalamazoo's WIDR 89.1 FM radio. Michelle, Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you with us. How are you doing? Well, thank you so much. I get tired sometimes just hearing all the things I've done. <laughs> I know. I know. Like, yeah. wow, that's me? <laughs> uh, right, I know. Well, I had those I, moments I said, enough about me. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be on your show, Michelle, and I really appreciate all you do. Well, I appreciate you. I, I often think about, you know, I often try to tell people why I met you. And I can recall, um, in fact, at that point, that was before when we had an equality mission. I remember driving up to fire because a friend of ours who's also a poet had told me, oh, you should come up there. You need to see this space. And, you should, and, and you know, I also had my, my alter ego as a poet. And I mm-hmm. came up there, first of all, 
I love the building. You know, it's a fire station. How can you not? Right. How can you not? (laughs) You know, and I had the best time. And we connected not only on the whole artistic tip, but also on politics, because at that point in time, Mm -hmm. there was the fight for the human rights ordinance um, in Kalamazoo. And it seems like, so. it's like, I found my Kalamazoo family, and Mm -hmm. it's been great. And we've we've touched on a lot of things over the years. And, you know, I'm really glad to have you here. Well, I'm honored to be there. And I just remember being disappointed that you weren't really living in Kalamazoo. I was like, no, come back, come back to Kalamazoo. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I really appreciated because we were doing so much work then with the kind of when we talk about intersectionality between the connections uh, uh, between Kalamazoo and Detroit and other places in the state. And I think your presence there made it really clear that um, our our issues are not separate. It's not a Kalamazoo thing or a Detroit thing or a Grand Rapids thing that um, so many things that we aspects that we are dealing with are you know statewide national wide and so I really appreciated you being there and you know one of the things that that I, that I mean Michigan is a really big state and people don't it's always true. recognize it and sometimes we can get caught in our own little niche and mm-hmm. forget about you know the other parts and I think that the other part that I liked about coming to fire was during my youth, we would spend many summers not far from Kalamazoo. We would be in Bangor, Michigan. And, oh. and you know, and so, and Kalamazoo was like the big city when you were that over was there. The hub. You, know, uh-huh. you, know, you know, hey, we're going to come to Kalamazoo for a big, you know. Um, we go to the South Haven for the beach, Kalamazoo for, you know, big shopping and stuff like that. So there was mm-hmm. something that was nice about coming home to that. And, um, I know that you were born in Kalamazoo, but you were mm-hmm. raised in Saginaw. So yes. by Michigan standards, you were bi-coastal. <laughs> <laughs> that is a way to look at it. You know, and I'm very and, much from Michigan, too. You know, my undergraduate mm-hmm. degree is at Michigan State. My, grad, my Ph.D. is at the University of Michigan. And with the work that I do for the state currently and as the Freedom Trail coordinator in the past, my identity has become much more rooted across the state of Michigan. And while, you know, home will always be Saginaw and Kalamazoo um, over the course of the last lifetime, but especially the last 20 years, Michigan has become very very much home, which is sometimes very difficult because we are faced with so many issues statewide. Um, but at the same time, it really deepens my understanding of what it is to be from this this state with all its complications. Well, you know, don't you find? But you know, one of the things too that that, and I I find that's interesting is like I know that at one point in time when I told people that I knew that there were a Latino community in Michigan, particularly in western Michigan, and that I knew some of them from in the summer when we would be up there, you know, my aunt had a thing where once a week we would go and help and we would pick berries with them. And so mm, I understand that mm-hmm. whole immigrant experience and what that was about and to see kids who, you know, weren't in school like we were. And they talked about how much school they missed and how they were traveling about and doing things. When you travel around, what are the different cultural perceptions that you hear when you go like from, I mean, Kalamazoo, Saginaw, Detroit, other places that you find that keep us different 
that maybe we aren't really aware of what mm, all is here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, th- there's so many ways that I think about responding to that. Um, first, I think uh, when uh, historically growing up in Saginaw in the you know in the 60s and the 70s, we had a significant Latino population. Most of these folks were Mexican American, or and their parents were Mexican, and so so many of the young people that I grew up with were the first generation. Americans, so to speak. And so that really became, growing up in Saginaw kind of started to set the tone for all of these different cultural experiences or, or some cultural experiences that were divergent from one another. But at the same time, from very early, I saw many of us were living in the same neighborhoods, facing the same challenges, um, and were you know, kind of grouped with one another in so many ways. And then what I see happening now is that people don't completely understand the breadth as, you know, as an African-American scholar or a black scholar who focuses on the history of our experience here in the state of Michigan from 1815 to the present. One of the things that I realized that we don't know is we don't, you know, quite frankly, don't know our history. We don't know the ways in which we've had black people inhabiting not just these these urban centers that have become so important to us, like Grand Rapids or Detroit or Kalamazoo or Saginaw, but the the outlying areas, the the rural areas, we don't really know that we had so many people, like say for instance in nineteen ten, we had over four hundred black owned farms. Mm-hmm. And which is hugely significant, particularly when we think about how how we be, have become so concentrated in particular space. So I think one of the things that unifies us is our lack of understanding of how broad our history is and how much stake we have in the the land in this state that we live in and um, the space and the place. And I think that to kind of extend that conversation is that I believe that one of the things that unifies us is one, we don't know what our history is. We don't know that we have had extensive black businesses and extensive black ownership, land ownership. Um, and in not knowing that, we don't know then what we're standing up for when we are seeing this um, large scale gentrification that's happening, especially in places like Detroit, but it's happening in Kalamazoo. We certainly have seen it in the neighborhood that fire um, is in, and you know that 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 we don't really completely understand how much stake we have and how much we we know what we're losing right now, but I don't think we, I don't think we know what we have lost over the last, you know, quite frankly, almost a hundred years, um, because we have had a significant amount of. Um, social autonomy. And so I think that that's one of the things that we are missing that we don't really understand when we go from place to place. I think the intersections of, um, of water, for instance, we think that, for instance, Flint is the only place that has these significant poisonings. And this is not to discount at all that that's the fact. But mm-hmm. our water is poisoned in the state of Michigan, and it's poisoned in the state of Michigan in large part because of the industry that we gave 
um, kind of carte blanche to for decades to allow folks to do whatever they wanted to do in the name of um, economic growth and economic sustainability in these places that have intersecting stories like Detroit and Saginaw and Flint and even the Kalamazoo to a certain extent with the, um, well, with a significant extent rather, with the um, paper industry. Of course, in most of these places, the industry has left. Um, and so what we, this interconnection that we are, I think, quite often missing in these places is that we have this shared history um, and this shared presence that is the, um, resonates from the fact that we have given industry and government so much space to try to create, you know, opportunities for themselves, and then you know, you know, that there's where the trickle down comes. Sometimes it's for a handful of people, and so I think that we we miss that. And then I think in missing our understanding of our interconnected histories, we aren't always as clear about what the the strategies are that we have generated over the past, um, and we haven't then as a result of not knowing what our history has been and what the strategies have been in the past that have been, in some cases, successful, um, we're not necessarily always tapped into what we can do in the present. And our stories of racism and classism and homophobia and misogyny are also, and environmental degradation are also interconnected. Um, So I don't think we often see that. But at the same time, going out into all of these communities, particularly as a community historian for the state, as we are generating, you know, what the official Michigan story is um, up to 1915, what I'm deeply encouraged by being in places like I go up to Houghton. I've been up to Houghton two times in the last couple of years, and I'm in Kalamazoo, Battle Creek, Marshall, Jackson, Saginaw, uh, Bay City, Detroit, Macosta, you know, I'm all over the state. Mm-hmm. Um, what I am seeing and what I'm deeply encouraged by is people willing to and interested in coming to terms with our history and better placing black people in a place of autonomy and contribution and not just, you know, black people contributed this and people that, you know, cause that's a very popular, um, approach to American history, but contributing and defining policy and cultural trajectory for the last over a hundred years, you know, Mm -hmm. we've been, we've been, black people have been such significant shakers and movers, particularly, I think it's so important when we think about resistance and how resistance has become, you know, we've got it. We luckily we've got a new term, you know, for in most people's vocabulary. People are mm-hmm. welcoming the resistance, but the resistance has been going on nationally for you know centuries. And but particularly, I think now we're seeing people better able across the state to say, here are the ways that Black people have resisted and established structure for themselves and, quite frankly, structure for ourselves. And I'm so enthusiastic about the, the fact that people at Michigan Technical University or 
folks in places like Macasta or even in Grand Haven where we have a very strong history of black people helping form Grand Haven, but there are no black people there any longer. But the folks in Grand Haven saying, we need to come to terms with the fact that there were black people here and they were inhabiting these spaces and, and creating opportunities for themselves and for the rest of us. And I am very, very encouraged how museums and libraries and individual avocational historians and various nonprofit organizations are very excited about acknowledging our past and thinking about how that might come into play for the present. But even more importantly, we're building networks of people across the state. That, so they're invested in the past, but these are people in the present that are putting forward significant um, work and resources and commitment to telling this story. And so that piece I'm especially uh, compelled by and mm-hmm. encouraged by because I fundamentally believe in what I have seen is when people start making those connections to the past, then they make connections to the present, and then they are better emboldened to take the kinds of positions that we see people taking across the country, across the world, um, but also here in our state, because people are making the connections between the atrocities and the injustices of the past, but also the the shining moments of people standing up for themselves and for other people. And people are validating that across the state and they're doing that in relationship to the past, but also I think very clearly making connections between that past and our current present, because my goodness, the parallels are far too, far too clear. Well, you know, I think that, and that's one of the reasons why I love what you're doing. And, um, you know, because I, like I said, I've been so fortunate to, to have seen a lot of it. This time last year I was in uh, Saginaw at the Lutz Veterans Center. And mm-hmm. um, I had come up there and um, someone wanted to talk about hallowed ground for African Americans. And they mm-hmm. wanted to talk about all these other places. I'm going like, do you know what happens right here in Michigan? And, you know, and so, you know, like we, we had this time where, like, you know, I said, let me take you on this journey. And we talked about the Underground Railroad, but also the people who stayed, like, in western Michigan, around mm-hmm. Battle Creek, became farmers mm-hmm. and stuff. You know, we talked about the northern migration and how people came up here. And, I mean, you saw, like, like you said, you don't know your history. Like, many of them just saw, well, you know, I've been up here and the jobs are gone and everything. But how did you get there and what were the mm-hmm. And and that same hope of the slave who came up and might have ended up coming from Battle Creek, might have ended up in Detroit to cross over to Canada, but the ones who came up during the migration, that same hope for yourself and for your family, a lot of them were saying, like, that's what we want today. I mean, we're still dreaming that. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. I have that that historical context and to not know. And I think that that's the part that's so important that you're collecting because I know that at the same point when I was doing there and I was talking about my time in Bangor and that there's a Latino man who said like, thank you. People think, you know, like, like basically like he was a, an immigrant who just showed up, but that his family had come up here and how they had worked and done that. And we don't mm-hmm. know that. And that's how, right. you know, I think the work about Michigan is so important. 
And absolutely, particularly when we think about Latino folks in this in this state, especially folks have been here for a long time. You know, definitely the night like by 1915 in a variety of ways. But we're finding I found a documentation of a Cuban cigar maker in Dwajak. Um, in 19, no, 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 not 19, I think 1890 or so. And so this is not a new experience. You know, this, we, not to mention, you know, let's just be real clear that the, that um, places like Texas and Arizona and New Mexico or New Mexico are very recent um, contributions to the United States. And so the idea that, um, you know, folks are immigrants is, is just really so much based on war and conquest and how we establish what the boundaries of our country have been and what they are. And so that folks who, anyway, so let me not go on that tangent, but um, <laughs> we have, we have, you know, we've, this is indigenous people's land. We forget mm-hmm. about that. And so these people who we are calling Latinos are indigenous people. And this, you know, so to, to it all suggests that um, these boundaries are something that we need to further establish is really kind of counter historical. And we, the, the, I think the more that we look at things through the lenses of history uh, as black people and Latino people and white people, then we are much better able to understand where we are currently because we are still colonizing America. Let's be real clear about that. Um, and in doing that, we have certain responsibilities to understanding what our history is. And when we position ourselves as the one um, in, a, in a history where we have um, isolated people who are indigenous to this, this continent, um, is, 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 is just counter-historical. And uh, I'm trying to find something other than ignorant. But, um, <laughs> is, 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 you know, sometimes my language still fails me. Um, but, you know, it, it's not an educated perspective. It's not an mm-hmm. it's, it, it's not a perspective that takes into account um, our history, um, and we are right now I think particularly up very on a very hard wall against our history, where we can decide um, to keep repeating the same old stuff that we've been doing for the last 500 years, or we can do something different. Um, and we've had enough voices through history over the last. 500 years to say, wait, the way we're doing things is is not um, sustainable. And I think that that's what we're particularly facing right now is the the inability to have this structure be socially sustainable. It's not environmentally sustainable. It's not socially sustainable. It's not spiritually sustainable um, to continue in the way that we are. And um, it will, and it is, I believe, kind of crumbling from underneath um, because of that lack of a sustainable model of how to interact with the planet and the other people and the beings that are on it. Now, now you have this, I mean, uh, you have a fire, as my mother said, you have a fire in your belly, okay, for about, <laughs> and, and, and I know that, you know, it's not something that you just sort of wake up. Like you can go way far back when, and I know that in, in reading some things about you, it's like, when did, did you start to say, you know, 
these these systemic structures, there are things that are wrong in this society, and that through history and and education, when did you you get this in your mind that this is what you wanted to do, that this was part of the path that you were going mm, to walk? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think you could grow up in the '60s and have the TV on mm-hmm. and not understand that there was something fundamentally wrong with how things were going. And I grew up, the TV was on all the time, you know, until it cut off. Cause you know, back then the TV cut off at a certain time, mm-hmm. um, but the TV was on, you know, I remember waking up quite often to that, beep, you know, the thing when the TV was, you know, um, mm-hmm. but I grew up seeing police officers beating black people. I saw police officers beating white people who were trying to stand up for peace or to stand up against the war. Um, That was, it was on the headline of the news and I read very early. Um, So for me, I I think that there are people in my generation that I don't know how they escaped that. I'm still trying to figure out what happened with our generation. I don't, that that's another Mm -hmm. conversation, but I didn't miss the point, so I saw it, and then, you know, we, and I saw that largely from the, you know, our television on the south side of Chicago on Stony Island, and so I was seeing these things happen at the same time I was immersed in a black community that was, you know, autonomous in some ways, you know, we had black businesses, black preschools, black bars, you know, I was, I, I, I understood the world that there was this this world outside of myself that was attacking us, um, but that we were retaining something for ourselves. And so I think that that very early modeling came with me when we moved to Saginaw. And, man, you know, I moved to Saginaw at four, and it was horrible. You know, it was really Mm -hmm. horrible. I was the first black child in my elementary school, and people were awful Neighbors were throwing rocks and calling names. Children were calling names. Um, and so I think from very early, you know, we got that, I got that, you know, that thing that so many of us get, you know, you've always got to be better. You've got to, you know, you've really, you've got to be a model in some ways. Um, and so all of that early imprinting built, uh, I think, built a fire, a survival fire in me. And, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up with a mother who is very political, you know, still to, mm-hmm. these, to this day, I she'll send me a Facebook, a Facebook announcement about, you know, some kind of thing going on. And she's on it sometimes before I am. And then I repost, <laughs> you know, that this, you know, this gain or this loss that we're, or this challenge may be better to say. Um, so I grew up with a mother who believed in striking and boycotting and writing letters and standing up and, um, you know, looking people in their face if they were staring at us and say, you know, take a picture that will last longer. So mm-hmm, I grew up mm-hmm. in, an, in an activist home in so many ways. Now, you know, my mother wasn't marching or, you know, she wasn't a community organizer in those kinds of ways. She was a really incredible teacher, but she taught me very early. You stand up for what you believe in and you look out for other people and you love the earth and um, animals are your friends and books are your friends. And so she animated the world for me in ways that 
made sense as I grew up. And, you know, then growing up in Saginaw with the, you know, rampant racism and classism and, you know, and sexism in many ways, too, um, I, I just grew up that you do something about that at all times. But I don't think that I thought about how to organize, you know, that was like, I think that's another thing that our generation experiences is our our politics became very personal. You know, we felt mm-hmm. like that, um, and we were taught that, I think, in a large way. You know, you just do your best, and you, you know, you, you get what you deserve, you know, and you don't always think about other people. So I think that I, I had some of that, but at the same time, by the time I got to undergrad at Michigan State, I started to realize that we really needed to address things systemically and collaboratively, and at that point, they were getting ready to move the women's lounge from uh, uh, the, the, what was no longer the current space now, but a very nice space in the union at Michigan, on Michigan State's campus to a place that was much more unsavory. And um, I was deep in my women's studies, and I really fundamentally believed at that time that um, intellectual inquiry was not enough. It required action. I was studying people like Audre Lorde and Mary Daly and, you know, these radical feminists that um, were not just calling for a kind of an armchair philosophy of injustice, but, you know, action. And so we organized to preserve the women's lounge and um, did a campus-wide petition drive and uh, conversations with the trustees, and we were actually able to save the women's lounge in my senior year from being moved. And that emboldened me in ways that sometimes I think, man, that was just, that set me up for disappointment in the future because not everything, I couldn't, I haven't been able to win. I haven't been able to win everything since then. Mm -hmm. Um, But it did make me believe in the power of collective action and um, that our voice can be heard, that we just have to be really stringent about it. And, you know, frankly, that kept me going, and it sent me out to Big Mountain, to Arizona, to try to fight the uh, Peabody Coal Company that was trying to, and did succeed in helping take over Navajo and Hopi um, sacred land to be able to go in there and take out coal. But it, it, it gave me the power and the strength and the belief that through collective action, through collaborative voice and agitation and resistance that we could make something happen. Um, 30 years later, they moved the women's lounge. It came under attack over and over again, and there were people who were able to um, stand up for it. But just this last summer, they, um, they not only, they didn't even move the women's lounge, they just got rid of it completely. And I was deeply, you know, deeply saddened by that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, encouraged by the fact that, you know, we got the women's lounge another 30 years, you know, Mm -hmm. from when we fought for it. Um, And there just wasn't the kind of, you know, I think now it'd be different, you know, Um, I think, people were far more complacent six months ago than they are today. I 
I believe that if we were, that if people had had the, that fire, you know, I'm still kind of disappointed and angry about the fact that we have gotten to this place where we are now when we didn't have to get there. Um, but there wasn't the, the critical mass or didn't even need to be a critical mass, but there wasn't the, you know, the, 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 there weren't the voices to say we need to continue to have this safe space for women because we know we still need that space. So that's the short version of it, um, which isn't very short at all. Um, <laughs> but it's it's rooted in, you know, 1964, watching the TV in Chicago <laughs> and seeing, um, you know, all of the all of the acts of violence that were taken out on us. But at the same time, the pure resistance of people of color and women and environmentalists and, and to, to, to see they, they were giving us solutions. Martin Luther King was giving us solutions. Malcolm X was giving us a solution. So I have always looked for solutions and I was, I was able to see both what the, the challenges were, but I took to heart those solutions mm-hmm. that I was seeing. And I, I'm excited that people are now starting to return back to some of those. And I'm trying not to be bitter about how damn long it took. Oh, don't be bitter. We're going to take a quick break. Um, sure. I mean, don't be bitter, you know, but I know No, 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 mean. no. We want to end on bitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I want you to, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back here on Collections Brown with, by Michelle Brown with my guest, Michelle Johnson. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on collections by Michelle Brown. You know, I under, I know exactly what you're talking about, you know, because, and it is, it's how you look at, there are some people who got it and some people who didn't. You know, um, I had, when I was in high school, I had uh, Dr. Gloria House. She, mm. And I saw her as an adult, I mean, you know, and I still want to call the doctor house. She says, oh, no, you know, and I'm going to, you know, you, you, you can't break certain things. No, but and I she, believe, I completely agree. And she said, you know, she said that there were people in her class, and she said, and she saw that there were some of them who just went on, and, you know, they had their jobs, and they could care less. And then she said, then there were those, like me, who she, she didn't feel, she felt were her success story, because that they were still, engaged and fighting mm-hmm. and doing things. And, you know, there were people like that. I mean, I can recall her telling us, you know, and, and, and telling us to, you know, look at Malcolm and, and look at what was in, and to think critically where mm-hmm. now many educators, I mean, I don't know if she'd be able to, 
to have that that voice. I mean, she had an afro. I went home and cut my hair. My father was <laughs> kill me, but I went home and cut my hair. I was down there. But but it was like those people who inspired you and continue mm-hmm. to inspire you. You know. Mm-hmm. So I yeah, mean, I, I, I think I, that so many of our people of our generation that we we've got a handful of people who like really took to heart the lessons that got them to the place that they were in and then we have people that just really enjoyed the privileges of the fight of the people before them and that was part of what the people before them were fighting for right they wanted us to be able to have access and to be able to be able to do everything that white people did and to not have to struggle. Um, But a lot of us just didn't keep fighting. We thought that that stuff was just going to, what, just keep coming to us? I'm not exactly sure what we thought. Um, But a lot of us did not. I think a lot of us have let down the generation after us. Um, without being able to give, um, without giving solutions. And so we got a lot of people floundering out there. And some of us don't even, uh, some of us of our generation don't even know what the solutions are because we didn't study them. We didn't listen. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and I think that one of the things that that I see, like for me, it's like my involvement in Detroit Summer. And I know that for you mm-hmm. and in watching and how you did with, with FIRE and the young people mm-hmm. that have come since then, I mean, I know that has to make you, you, you know, have that special place like, you know, you've, you've done something. You know, when you look at those, I, when, you, when you passed the baton and I looked at here with these young people who were doing it, how did the ideal of FIRE come about? Mm. Um, you know, I make it sound like everything comes back to Saginaw and Chicago, but it does in so many ways. Again, growing up in in Saginaw when I did and growing up in Chicago when I did, um, I saw black autonomy. I saw black businesses. I saw black space as an option to the racism that I saw around me, having black beauty shops and barber shops and grocery stores and dentists in your neighborhood. Um, And so I believed really early that that was part of the solution. And and so so that was one of the pieces about creating space, that that work that I did at Michigan State to create safe space for women. I feel that I think if there's anything – one thing that I feel most passionate about is creating space for people who don't have space. Um, and those are, those are LGBT, let's just say lesbian people, gay people, bisexual people, transgender mm-hmm. people, and queer people. I'm getting a little bit tired of putting them all together because those are distinctive experiences. And I feel especially like we're losing lesbian voices in this whole dialogue. Anyway, so let me not go there. Mm-hmm. But so that, that creating space for people who have distinctive identities that don't have space in other places. And I think that, in fact, I know that Denise Miller and I, the other co-founder of FIRE, um, we believed really strongly in creating those opportunities for people to articulate their authentic selves. And that wasn't something that was happening in Kalamazoo at the time when I first moved there. And so I brought that understanding of what I experienced in Saginaw and what, quite frankly, having grown up in Kalamazoo, 
I mean, I'm, I'm being born in Kalamazoo and coming there in the summers. I would still go there in the summers when I was a kid. Um, not seeing it in Kalamazoo when I got there and being very much committed to, and I still am very much committed to, if it's not there and I would like to see it happen, then I'm going to try to create it. And so Denise is, is also very much of the same mind. And so that's where fire came from in addition to her deep rootedness in Kalamazoo and in the poetry community. Cause I was, you know, I was kind of new on this and the adult scene, you know, my whole Kalamazoo was the North side, you know, every, mm-hmm. you know, that's where I, that's where I was born. That's where my family was. I didn't even really know that there was much else of Kalamazoo. And so in the course of um, coming back to Kalamazoo, I, and connecting up with the people that she knew and the circles of poets and artists, um, kind of building, bringing those two pieces together, her commitment to poetry and the arts community in Kalamazoo and the social justice that she was already doing there and my commitment to social justice and creating space for people who don't have space. And that's young people, that's senior citizens, those are people who have a vision about theater, but they haven't gotten to do it yet, or people who want to explore community organizing, but they haven't gotten to do it yet. Um, Feeling like we needed a space that people could express themselves and be themselves and manifest whatever vision it was that they had. And so we really um, came from the perspective of yes and, you know, so you want to mm-hmm. do that? Yes. And this is how you do it. It's an improv uh, technique, but it's also a life technique, I think. And so I, it, it came very much from, I think, uh, what I saw and what we both saw as a need in the community, um, but also a need in ourselves to have that kind of, that safe space for um, people who were quite frequently marginalized by the, by the artistic or their social community, and it really it took. And I, it's probably one of the things. Uh, there are a number of things I'm very proud of in my life, but uh, fire is right up there at the very top. After being there for you know starting it and being there for ten years and seeing the ways in which that vision and that uh, manifestation resonates with people of all ages and many, many backgrounds. Um, I know that it was something that was probably one of the more significant contributions that I've made in my life. And when I look around the state or the country, quite frankly, um, I'm still pretty impressed I think that, mm-hmm, we've mm-hmm. Done, that we've done something significant nationally in terms of the artists that have emerged out of that place, people like Megan McNeil and Lindsay Kelly, um, visual artists that have emerged um, because somebody has said yes. And, and yes, and here's the space to do it. And yes, and we can do that at a discounted rate because this is your first show. Uh, I, I see the power of that. And I see that it is a model um, that is replicable, but not quite often replicated enough of creating the opportunity for people to truly be their authentic selves and get the skills and the opportunity to express that. Um, so it really, it really comes out of that as well as my own, you know, 
desires that I didn't even know that I had to be a creative person, you know, before Mm -hmm. fire, I didn't really write poetry. Um, I hadn't started DJing. I wanted to, but I hadn't. Um, So fire in many ways was as much a creative opportunity for myself. And I would even argue for Denise as it was for other people. So we all in Kalamazoo co-created that space. And I think the, that that is actually the power of it, the power that's continued. As you said, we've passed on the baton. Um, I think it was um, Ella Baker who said that her her goal in life was to work her way out of a job um, mm-hmm. because she would fund them, build the capacity of the organizations and the people that she was working with so that they didn't need her anymore. And I... I really resonate with that perspective. And um, it was a very scary thing to hand it over, but it was a very necessary thing to make sure that, you know, the community believed in it enough to keep it going. And they have, um, and I'm very, I'm very, very proud of that. I know. I mean, it is, like you said, it is something very scary to some, at a certain point to like step back and say, okay, you know, uh, I know some people say it's like you've given birth, but then it's like, go and it, and it goes mm-hmm. it might not be the same way that when you did it but it's become its own mm-hmm. and I think that's the thing that that's so interesting the other thing that you said I found was really interesting um recently I, I had a conversation with Andrea Jenkins and Andrea Jenkins is a poet she's an artist she's a trans activist she was originally from Chicago and now she lives in Minneapolis and we were talking about that, and she was talking about the things that she saw and, in Chicago, like you talked mm. about how, you know, and, and how in some ways, even though the, everything wasn't perfect, but there was a safeness. She could mm-hmm. walk out and see someone and see businesses. But then how, mm-hmm. when she went someone else having seen that, how it influenced what she wanted to see and to have those yep. kind of spaces and make it better. And mm-hmm. I hear that coming through and what you do, and I mean, you talk about, you know, you going back to Saginaw, going back to all of those that no, it wasn't perfect, but there were things that you saw and that lit that fire in you that you wanted to, to make the space. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I, what I, as you mentioned earlier, I'm, also very integrally connected to um, youth communities. And I, I, I can hang out with people who are, you know, 80 or 14 and have an equally good time and be engaged and, and um, be engaging. And I think that part of what my mission is, is to help show young people some peace of what I saw, because I, unfortunately right now they're not seeing those black businesses and that black autonomy or people of color autonomy, or um, I, I think we, you know, our, our LGBTQ folks, we're being, we're a lot more visible certainly than I, than things were when I was a young person. Um, but we, there are certain kinds of, of power that we aren't seeing um, for our young people. We're not modeling for our young people right now. Mm-hmm. And so I want them to have the same ideal that I grew up with. In, you know, in part it was to be safe, but in part it was to say, look at what we do. You know, look how we take care of ourselves and each other. And I, I feel really deeply committed to our young people seeing 
that same kind of model because then they're going to be able to help perpetuate, um, you know, black autonomy in the future or queer autonomy or, you know, whatever those elements of who they are exist, uh, that they're able to do that. And I think that we have that as a responsibility to show our young people what's possible and how to survive and not just how to survive, but how to thrive in this, um, in these times that, um, seek to dominate and circumscribe us. Now, when you, you talk about how once you, once you became involved in For Fire, that you found your poetic voice. <laughs> I did. It's so crazy. And when you found that voice, you know, because I often tell people the arts have always been, to me, arts are revolutionary. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if, and if you look at any point of revolutionary, if you don't have the arts, I mean, that's where through song, through poetry, yep. through all that. Okay, what made you finally say, I'm going to, I can not only do that first poem, but do it in front of your peers who went from 14 to whatever, 80, you know, 80 some, 80, mm-hmm. you know that, you, that you were ready to like, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm, I'm going to express that. What moved you there? What made you say, you know what, I, I need, to, I need to, to express myself this way. And mm-hmm. how are you, what, what words of wisdom did you get from the youngest and from the oldest? Mm. Well, you know, I had been writing, you know, I, I'd written academically. I had written, um, you know, short stories, flash fiction or short stories in many cases. So I did focus on words. You know, I like, I've loved words my whole life and I have been writing off and on in various various ways probably most of my life but quite frankly being around all of these poets you know Mm -hmm. these people um you know slam poets page poets you know new poets who were like you know 14 years old writing their first rhymy stuff um or you know 80 some year old poets like marvin who robinson who had written these really beautiful, which I don't, you know, I'm still, I, I, I still don't identify as a poet, um, but, you know, very structured, educated poems. Um, it just became, it, it was, it was the, what the lingua franca, I might say, of fire in many ways. And uh, through like the, the prompting, really, quite frankly, it's always, it was always through the prompting of other poets that I even thought about putting my, you know, my pen to a page and doing that kind of work. Um, in fact, every, almost every poem that I have ever written um, has been at the, the request, from the request of somebody else. Um, it's mm. either for a performance or, um, in fact, one of my favorite pieces I've ever written was from one of, um, our young fire, uh, one of our fire youth leaders who asked for, um, we were doing a piece after, at the end of a summer program on generations and the, the request came, you know, if you could tell any, if, as, as someone from your generation, if you could share what you know and what we need to know to teenagers, what would you say? And that remains still one of my very favorite pieces. Would I have sat down and written that independently? Probably never. Um, <laughs> so I'm a re- I, I would say I, if, 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 I, 
if if I'm a poet, if I'm if I do poetry at all, it's uh, as it's responsive poetry. It's quite frankly in response to someone wanting to hear what I have to say about a particular subject in that way, or at the same time, or if there's just something that's going on in the world that I just um, I can't I can't avoid it. And there's an open mic coming up. I'm mm-hmm. very much um, oriented on. Um, in that type of way, even in my writing, I'm very much oriented toward a deadline um, or a particular need. Um, I'm not always the kind of writer, I'm getting to be that way more often, and it's more in kind of prose, where I just feel like a need to write. Um, I usually quite more often feel a need to act. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, my work at FIRE and being around other writers has made it more clear to me that I need to write from inside, not just from outside, and that I actually enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't be around people, you know, that, I'm, that I was around at that place and not, um, not feel like you want to have something to say, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's true. Um, so... How did you become DJ Disobedience? <laughs> <laughs> well, the name, yeah, I get, I, I, it's so funny. I, people have asked me about that name quite often. And, of course, it's connected to the notions of civil disobedience that, you know, emerged with people like Henry David Thoreau and um, Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin, you know, the idea of disobedience being something that is a political action, um, that it comes from that. Um, so that's where the name comes from. And it also, I, originally I wanted to be DJ Sag Nasty, um, because if you, <laughs> people who are from Saginaw, I, you, you know, mm-hmm. or people who know people from Saginaw sometimes know we go by Sag Nasty. Um, but people, nobody really liked that, that people in Kalamazoo <laughs> didn't, they didn't, they didn't get it. Um, and so I switched to DJ Disobedience. Um, and so I still got a soft spot for DJ Sag Nasty. Um, but, Again, uh, that's interesting that you ask. I, I think I've been a DJ probably a long time. My my father was a musician. Um, he was a professional musician both in Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids, and which I just recently found out. Um, and my mother played baritone, and there was just there was just always music in my house. Um, Saturday mornings were always, um, you know, my mom would do the laundry and do the ironing and play her albums. And mm-hmm. that was just how Saturday mornings went. And then, again, so much is rooted in Saginaw. Uh, we had a black radio station the whole time I was It's still there. It's not, you know, it's become syndicated now and it's, you know, uh, you know it's like radio all over the country. But when I was growing up, we had W3 Soul. And that was an anchor in the community. It was an anchor for me. It was an anchor in many ways for my family. And I just grew up believing in radio and radio in many ways. In fact, I'm thinking about submitting this essay about it. Um, Radio was grounding for me. It connected me when I felt disconnected, um, you know, integrating this elementary school and in some ways, you know, me and other black people integrating our middle school or what we call junior high um, to be able to come back to music 
and music that I could kind of control and listen to on my own. Um, I think that that was a significant contribution. And then I just always loved music. I, you know, one of mm-hmm. my first birthday presents at seven was a little white and orange general electric record player and I played the mess out of that thing and by the time I got to probably about nine or ten me and my friend Vicky um, we started our own little radio station in my bedroom I got a little Panasonic uh, tape recorder for my birthday or Christmas or something and we had a little microphone and we would put together radio shows and you know we'd have advertisements and stories and play music and you know we you know whatever we heard on the radio we would try to replicate and I'd have interviews you know kind of like this you know I'd interview Mm -hmm. a subject Mm -hmm. and she would interview me and we would assume different characters and stuff and I so wish I could find if I could find just one of those tapes I would be the happiest person in the world but they're all way gone Um, and so WBOJ at 10 was my first radio station (laughs) Um, my first mm-hmm. radio show and but then quite frankly Michelle I believed that women that, like I was a drummer I played softball I you know I loved women I did all you know I did all these things that weren't mm-hmm. the things that you were supposed to do as a girl or a young woman but somehow Michelle I still believed that men were DJs so hmm. I didn't when I was at Michigan State I had a boyfriend who was a DJ for Michigan State uh, you know for the, the radio station there and it never as much as I loved music and knew as much I would say maybe if not more about music than he did I never thought oh I could be a DJ too and then I got to grad school and I had a good friend who was a DJ for the radio station there and again knew as much about music, loved it just as much as he did, but never even dreamed. Now, and this is crazy because I'm a grown woman then. I still <laughs> didn't dream that I could be a DJ too. Michelle, what does, I don't even understand that. I don't, I just don't yeah, understand I it. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, well into my 30s before it dawned on me, oh, Maybe I could get some turntables and maybe do something, but still, I just did it in my basement. Um, wow. And it really was, really was fire that brought that out of me. And, and even if, if I don't remember how much you remember this space, I set up my DJ equipment in this little, little space. It wasn't even out in fire. It was in this yeah. little room that became our recording studio and radio station. Mm-hmm. I set up in there because I was like, I'm just going to be back in here and, you know, nobody's going to see me and I don't need to see me. Um, and then gradually people kept saying, you know, come out, <laughs> come out of that little room. And, so come, um, out. Was, come out, come out. Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, there were all kinds of places that I was out in various ways, but this was the like the last bastion, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And it took another woman, it was a younger woman who was a DJ at Wider, who said, you know, I'm getting ready to leave my show. She did a Thursday night show from 11 to 1. She said, I'm getting ready to leave. She, I, I still I can't remember her name. I can see her just as clear as day, but I can't remember her name. And she said, I'm going to let, let people know that you could DJ there. Are you interested? I'm like, yeah, I'm interested. And so it was really this other woman whose name I cannot remember and the space of fire that really allowed me the permission to give myself to really be a DJ. And now 
I love it. It's one of Wider's um, favorite shows, you know, and um, mm-hmm. I've been doing it for over 10 years now. And I, and like religiously, there's not another thing in the world I don't think that I could do every Saturday morning um, from 11 to 1, like clockwork on time. I don't, I don't come in late except a couple of times <laughs> a year. I don't miss the show except a couple uh-huh. of times uh-huh. a year. And um, almost every time I am just completely happy to be there and um, even more so encouraged because it's it fills a need for people. You know, I can be someplace, you know, walking down the street and somebody say, are you DJ Disobedience? Because they've recognized my voice, for instance. Uh-huh. And that kind of connection makes me feel really really good and it kind of comes full circle to how I felt about radio when I was growing up and you know coming into my adulthood and I just feel like radio is so incredibly powerful um, because it um, you know people have to connect in a way that is not visual it's not necessarily tactile in the ways they it, it just is something that connects with them on this kind of ethereal level. And um, it is, you know, as I said, fire is one of the best things I've ever done. I think becoming DJ Disobedience and holding down this slip back soul show for as long as I did have is another one of my most significant contributions that I feel like I can stand by and feel very proud of. Now, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning, her name is going to come to you. You know, I, know. I want you to e- I, I want you to does. email it to me. I, <laughs> I really hope okay, now it we're does take, because... <laughs> okay, we're going to take another short break, and we'll be right back with our conversation with Michelle Johnson here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. on Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. Join the collection at www.collectionsbymichellebrown.com. Okay, well, Michelle, we are back. So tell me, um, if someone, if you were to tell somebody, they were saying like, okay, who are you listening to now that would surprise somebody? Who would, who would you say? Oh, what music am I listening to that would <laughs> surprise me? Mm, oh, surprise. It would surprise you. Mm. That would probably be like the ratchet music that I listen to sometimes. <laughs> um, let's see. Mm. Man, I don't even want to say because I'm embarrassed. (laughs) Because I can't tell you how many times a Chris Brown song comes on the radio and I'm like, ooh, I like that. And I look down and I see it's Chris Brown and I have to change the station. Um, So, hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, when you're listening, where have you found, what influences have you found that have, have, have creeped in from like, Back in the day where it was probably a lot of strong R&B influence or the, mm, the hip-hop, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. sort of have found creeping into your playlist? 
Oh, well, I think one of the things that's really exciting about what's happening is people are hearkening back to the music of the 70s, especially, and so I get to hear a lot of samples of music. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting that's happening now, and I, that there's, uh, there's people who are doing these like music videos to old school 70s songs, like music by the artistics, for instance, and then they'll do a video, and I don't even know who the current, like who the remix folks are, but they'll do a video and it's all this like 70s music but it's like this contemporary these contemporary images of the, the present and so I think that I, I find that that is really interesting I, I I like how people are hearkening back to samples from the 70s because there's you know there's so much really great music that came out of there that you know people had two or three songs and that's all they had. So I really enjoy that. I enjoy um, hip hop, especially that um, integrates those elements. Um, you see people like August Alcina who does that. I mean, Kanye West, is the the king Kanye and Jay Z are the king of biting you know so I feel a little bit differently about how they do it um, but I do like how that's happening I am very very excited about people like the internet um, Sid the kid who um, I'm not sure exactly what their next round of music will be like but their their last couple of albums really incorporated you know and as you know Sid the kid or the, is a, a a queer person. Um, I'm not mm-hmm. totally sure how she had, uh, how they identify, but um, uh, but really great music. We're, uh, teaming up with musicians that have a really deep understanding of soul and R and B, and then you know putting that to love songs about another woman. That mm-hmm. really makes me mm-hmm. happy. You know, mm-hmm. I really am so excited to see people like Kalani out there whose music I don't like love all of it, but to see um, women out there right now um, being really open about their sexuality and then digging into the musical traditions that um, in some ways have rejected us. But mm-hmm. um, and then and claiming that for ourselves. I mean, what we had Michelle and Deguerocello, and that's oh, yeah. all we had for a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we got people who I won't name any names, but people in hip hop and R and B that didn't step up and you know claim their full identity. Um, mm-hmm. And so I am so excited about um, you know how I am seeing these women at this point um, just be out and be free and express themselves musically and artistically um, and politically and sexually and and, uh, according to their identity. Um, And so people like the Internet, you know, Sid the Kid, I just I'm very, very encouraged by that kind of work. And, you know, even, you know, local artists that are becoming more and more open about who they are, that that. And, and, and claiming our full heritage as as black mm-hmm. people, our, our musical heritage, our cultural heritage, and our you know our identity heritage, to see all of those pieces wrapped up in um, in artistic expression gives me a lot of encouragement. Well, I'd love to see you, DJ. I can. I am thinking about like when you had the the. the at the brewery and you know you were you were just like into your music and you know and I just love to see that and you know and it's so like that's who you are I mean you know I mean you can tell that you love the music 
you know, you could hear those beats, the way that they were flowing into each other. I really enjoyed that myself. And, you know, so you just, I can figure out a way to listen to you, but I can listen to you online between 11 and 1. Oh, you certainly can. From 11 to 1, you go to WIDRFM.org, and we we stream live all the time. So it's on Saturday mornings from 11 to 1. You can always catch it. It's the Slipback Soul Show. Sometimes I go contemporary, but I only go contemporary if it's an artist that really resonates with that, you know, those musical traditions that I focus on up to 1990. Or, so, or it's an artist who's still kicking around, you know, like Jeffrey Osborne is still doing stuff. Charlie Wilson, man, is still yeah, doing stuff. Yeah, I got a commercial. And, I'm going like, oh. And still fresh. Still, you mm-hmm. know, Charlie mm-hmm. Wilson. Uh, you know, people slept on Charlie Wilson for a long time, but, you know, so I'll play people like him or people who are inspired by or seem to be inspired or resonant with those music genres that I focus on. Um, but yeah, you know, that's so interesting that you say that it's noticeable that I love it. I just um, uh, solicited some reviews to get, get more DJ gigs. And consistently, that's what people say is how much I seem to enjoy what I'm doing. Um, mm-hmm. And I do. There's no denying it. It's, um, it is my, my core passion is music. And to find other people who dig that, you know, and enjoy what I do and what my passion is, is probably one of the, the, the greatest highs and greatest satisfactions in my life. So we're coming into the home stretch, Michelle. And, you know, one of the reasons, you know, as I, as I go about people, it's because you are unapologetically yourself. You are <laughs> African-American. You are a lesbian. You are queer. You are a historian. You are from, you're sag nasty. I mean, you are. I am sag nasty, girl. (laughs) You are all these things. And, you know, and it, and that's who we are. You know, people say like, oh, well, I didn't know anybody was this and I don't know anybody. I say, yeah, you do. You know, and we're nothing, we're not the sisters from another planet. We're just Mm -hmm. us. And we are so full and so embracing. And one of the things that I found from everyone is that they have these, full lives and if more people couldn't embrace all of their intersectionality you know mm-hmm. i think it'd be a lot happy uh, and so i'd like to ask you how do you feel i mean you have a lot of intersections in your life how do you feel they have influenced that your life and impacted the directions you've taken and how do you think that's going to impact your future work mm. Well, I always go back. I, I had the, the the honor of meeting Audre Lorde on more than one occasion, um, both as an undergrad and a graduate student, and got to have, like, not big, long, deep conversations with her, but, you know, to, enough. Um, and as we know, Audre Lorde always said, I am a lesbian, I am black, you know, I am a feminist, you know, I am a mother, I am a poet, I am an intellectual, that um, Audre Lorde modeled for me very, very early in my intellectual kind of articulation that we are multiple people. And I, you know, I certainly couldn't grow up in Saginaw without seeing myself as multiple people. Um, and so 
I kind of had that rootedness in my own experience. And then, you know, people like Audre Lorde validated that and said, yeah, you know, in fact, that's where our power comes from. And so some of those places are not, haven't always been comfortable as I've been growing up because, you know, the other parts of that intersectionality is I'm a vegetarian and I'm Mm. an environmentalist Mm. and, you know, those places can, are not always comfortable for those other parts of who I am, you know, or the, you know, that black folks aren't always trying to think about vegetarians, people who are Mm -hmm. interested in social justice, um, are not always, don't always extend that, um, you know, that those rights to non-human animals don't, when we talk about intersections, people don't understand like Charles Johnson did that the way that in Oxfording tales that when, if, if we can set ourselves up to degrade any other being, then we're perfectly set up to be able to degrade other humans. If we think mm-hmm. that if, if we think we're better than a cow or a pig or a chicken, then it's not a leap at all to think that we're better than somebody else. And it's not a leap for white people to think black, cow, chicken, all the same. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, those, like, pushing those intersections of myself um, are not always comfortable for people. And it's not always comfortable for me, but it's who I am. Um, And so I think the degree to which each one of us, myself included, claims the full extent of who we are is the degree to which we're going to have a better planet, you know, is the degree mm-hmm. to which um, we're going to see that oppression is oppression, you know, confinement is confinement, and not one living being wants to be oppressed and confined, whether they're a cow or a chicken or a human or a young person or a grown person, you know, nobody wants that. And so mm-hmm. um, the more I assert that in places that are, in, are not always comfortable, you know, the, the more I guess I am who I am. Um, and I think I fundamentally believe, again, that the degree to which we can deal with each person's intersectionality and their need to be their full authentic selves will be the degree to which we can have a a world, a planet, a city, a state, wherever community that understands that justice is not something that you can just, you know, you don't just give it to people who you think are deserving of it um, and, or to beings that we think are deserving of it. And so I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I do think that if people could see the world through the lens that, that I and other people who understand intersectionality on the very deepest and the broadest levels, I think that then we're going to have a platform um, that includes everybody in a world that is just. Um, you, don't, you don't pick and choose who gets to have rights. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that is the only, really, quite frankly, I, and I've said quite frankly so many times, but um, I think that's our only solution. I think, I think that's, hey, the only, mm-hmm. that, 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 that's the mm-hmm. only way. Um, mm-hmm. We have to respect the life of the tree as much as we expect the life of our sister, you know. Um, and until we understand that intersectionality is not just about human experience, but planetary experience, we're going to keep doing the same stuff that we've been doing. And to validate everybody's multiple 
understandings and intersectionality on this planet is going to be our liberation. Well, well, on that note, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. Um, I'll be up to, you know, I'm planning as soon as the weather breaks. I've got to go to Chicago first, but then I've got to get up to Kalamazoo. I mean, there's so much we could talk about for hours, and um, I look forward to continuing. I know, and we've got to do it more often, Michelle. We definitely do, but I do thank you for being with us, for sharing your thoughts, for all you do, for for being that 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 person that you are. Um, I'm glad to have you in my life. And so with that, I hope to see you soon. Well, thank, thank you, you so much, Michelle, and thank you. You know, you we, you you have underestimated all you do, and I really respect and appreciate your um, long haul contribution to our communities uh, and all of our intersections. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. So with that, I'm going to say goodnight to our listeners. And um, if you've missed any episodes of the past episodes, you can always go to the collectionsbymichellebrown.com webpage and our archive section and listen to them again. Until next week, um, have a great one. And I look forward to bringing you another amazing individual who is living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of her intersectionality as they create change. That will be right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you and good night. <laughs>